So um, I want to mention that your book, Jonestown Survivor, is a very, very um, educational read as well as a very um, touching portrait of what you went through. And um, I think for the younger people, I'm not a younger person, I'm almost 60. Um, it would be, I know I have a young voice, so it, it's very educational um, for them to understand what happened from the perspective of someone who lived through it. And um, we had an interview with David Weiss Parker. I don't know if you know him or not, but yeah, um, I do. Yeah, he, he gave us a unique perspective um, on, on Jim Jones as well. So, uh -huh. Well, I liked um, the beginning of the book, which talked about your mother and your grandmother and your childhood, because I think that people feel that um, a certain uh, personality type is is an occult, and that's not true. Um, it, it's not. There's no such thing as as a as a someone who's prone to a cult. And I like the way that you 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 establish that. I don't know if you did it purposely to establish the, the background and, and the type of idealism you had and the hopefulness you had and how um, you uh, wound up with the um, with People's Temple. So I, I'd like to go back a little bit in terms of, um, of that, if you could maybe expand or even um, reiterate what's in your book about how you first um, got involved with um, People's Temple and what was your first impressions, especially for those who haven't read your book yet. I think it would be helpful. Okay. Um, you know, I grew up, I was born in Washington, D.C., so I started to say, you know, I'm an original patriot. I was born in George Washington Hospital in Washington, D.C. <laughs> so um, my mom was always a progressive, but kind of a closet progressive because she had three daughters to raise on her own. And so she had to be very careful, but she always had integrity and she would never step back from standing up for what was right. But she didn't, you know, she wasn't on a street corner, sort of like I am. But she, you know, so she was um, always a role model for me. And so we, you know, helped get John Kennedy elected in 1960. And she was so involved that she got tickets for the inaugural ball. And my sister got to go. And so early on in Washington, she was an activist in the Democratic Party. And she had me leafleting from the time I could walk, I think. And, you know, she was also PTA chair, uh, president of all of our schools as we went through elementary and high school in the suburbs of Washington. So she was a role model to me and always, you know, brought out, you know, the best in people. And so when I was growing up in the 1950s, I was born in 1947. So. I'm almost, you know, I'm eight years or more older than you are. So I grew up in a time when um, the civil rights movement was just gaining momentum. We'd always had segregation and it had pretty much, you know, that was part of our society and we were changing that. So it was a time of change in the United States. And then the 1960s hit when I was in, you know, L, uh, middle school and high school. And all of a sudden, all my favorite leaders, the people I respected, were shot by vigilantes. Yes. So in the decade of the 60s, unlike any other decade before or since, 
John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X were all shot and killed and Medgar Evers was killed. I mean, we had all these really role models and idealists in our, our society were shot and killed. And so by the time I finished high school in 1965 and went to college, and then we got involved in the war in Vietnam, I was pretty much sick and the vigilantes and money were running our government. And so my decision at that time was to not let the world be run by bullies. Mm -hmm. And so I knew I had to be an activist. So I wasn't sure exactly where to start with that. I did protest the war in Vietnam in New York, and I did go to the Pentagon and help exercise the Pentagon <laughs> to get rid of the evil that was residing there and stuff. But another thing that happened to me is while I was protesting the war in Vietnam down Fifth Avenue in New York, I got tear gassed. Yeah, well, I read that. And so, you know what, like the world was really out of control. Our yeah. free nation was out of control and trying to oppress people. And so... That had a significant effect on me in a couple of ways. First of all, I knew if you were going to be involved in politics, you could not get into drugs. And so in a way, it really assisted me in not taking the direction of drugs, which some of my friends got involved in. I did try everything under the sun, no question about it. But my heart was not in just pursuing my own creature comforts. But I had to try everything. And as I've said so many times, you know, whenever whenever there's a path, if there's a straight path and then there's one that veers off, I always take the one that veers off. I never go the most direct way, even when it's obvious that that's the right road. You know, <laughs> I have to take the hard road. So anyway, during that time, that was a very uh, important part of me forming who I was. I was not then and I can't now just sit back and see um, inhumane treatment of other people. So, you know, that's kind of my background. Then um, I was in college in Connecticut and I was a philosophy major because along the way I had met somebody who was a philosophy major and I'd been very impressed by her. So I thought, you know, maybe that's the way to go because I wasn't really drawn to anything else in particular. Yeah. So I tried being a philosophy major and I worked in a housing project near my school as kind of a work study so I would teach, you know, literature or I would do hobbies and things like that and then come back to my college campus in Bridgeport, Connecticut and sit in a symbolic logic class, which had no meaning to me at all. And so I dropped out of college and I um, got married briefly, you know, a blissful nine months. And then um, we got divorced and then I started kind of figuring out, OK, where where am I going from here? So I got involved with the Black Panthers for six or seven months. I had several living in my apartment with me in Connecticut, and we'd have the meetings in my kitchen. And it ended up not working out very well for me. So I moved from that and went to Woodstock. So I tried Woodstock. I thought maybe free love and free drugs would be the way that, you know, I could have a little more fun in life or something, but that didn't work either for me. It didn't really draw me into that kind of a, a culture. And um, at that time, my sister lived in San Francisco and she, you know, called me because we're very close. And she said, you know, I've kind of watched your life cycle down in the last four or five years. You made one lousy decision after another. Um, come out here and live with me in Haight-Ashbury in California, and uh, I'll take care of you and we'll get you straightened out, kind of, you know? 
1970, in March of 1970, I moved out to San Francisco from Connecticut. And my sister at that point said uh, she had friends in the legal field because she worked for uh, legal aid. Mm -hmm. And they had told her that there was a minister up in Redwood Valley who had a, a wonderfully integrated church and it was an activist group and he was involved in all kinds of things that I would be interested in. And so the very first Sunday I came to California, we drove two hours north of San Francisco and went to his church in Redwood Valley. And there was, you know, this really what I was looking for, which was a multi-denominational, totally integrated church with people of all ages and education and you know, all kinds of backgrounds, just really a fascinating group of these really kind of purists. You know, they were very kind of conservatively dressed and nobody was flirtatious and, you know, all the things that I was, had part of my personality at the time. And I think that's what lacks, you know, because now there's such a myth about the, you know, Jim Jones, he's grown to a mythic status, is that that how unique that situation was because people feel that it was a mindless people were robots but it it was a very unique cultural experience of of doing very good work for the community and improving conditions and that ironically Jim Jones was very respected and and politicians knew him and Mm -hmm. and he was not you know he nobody would have known anything he was very well looked upon Yes, I mean, I think that, you know, there are a couple things that happen. Jim really at the time was somebody who also seemed a purist. You know, he, first of all, he would speak, you know, from every week or something with Angela Davis and Cesar Chavez and Mm -hmm. Dennis Banks, all of my heroes, you know, my newly emerging heroes after the ones that I loved in the 60s had been killed. He was in contact with the new heroes of the age, you know, like Angela Davis. And so he would have conversations and bring those conversations into his discussion in the meeting, in our meetings. And we had a meeting Wednesday night for a family meeting. And then uh, Saturday we'd have some kind of cleanup or something. And Sunday we'd have a regular meeting where busloads of people would come from uh, San Francisco and other parts of the Bay Area. So... Um, You know, I saw him quite a lot. And during that time, you know, he taught night school in the local high school. And a lot of us went to that. And we had counseling. And we were kind of a small church that was just on the edge of growing. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of us who are still in contact are the people who grew up in that temple, the one that was more rural, um, there were, you know, we saw Jim a lot during the week driving in because his house was right on the church property. We knew his kids really well because we saw them all the time. I mean, it was very much a small church family. Uh, once we decided that we wanted to expand and go into San Francisco, I think that that's where the major problem really happened because Jim was just in love with power. And as he got into a place where he had political power with local government officials, he lost track of the individuals in his meetings. And But those of us, like I, continued living in Redwood Valley, a number of us did. And so we didn't really feel it so differently because he knew us. When he saw us, he would say hello, yeah. and he knew our name. But once he got into cities, he was more anonymous, and so were the people who were members. So our pictures 
were from that early time when we knew them. And in a way, that stopped us from seeing some of the decline. Mm-hmm. Because we had this picture in our mind. We had already proven, you know, felt validated that he was a wonderful person. And so wherever he took us, we had seen him close up and personal for several years. We didn't really change our image of who he was. And so we didn't pick up on clues that he was getting more and more ego-driven and driven by this political cloud he was developing. There was nothing at all peculiar, even when you knew Jim as a more humble person. There was nothing looking back that was peculiar about him. Well, you know, when I, um, I think even when I wrote my book, I thought, that there wasn't the other side of him. But mm-hmm. always with Jim, there was a public persona and the private persona. So no matter what he portrayed to the general population, in his own house, he was a tyrant. And he had a longtime mistress. He you know, was very, um, his own children who knew the inside of him had to realize that he was really almost a split personality, oh. his public persona and the way he handled it in the house. So he was always um, he was always able to create this image of being caring and concerned and loving, but he wasn't that way to everybody. But I he see. just hid it. So really early on, it wasn't like he really did turn overnight. There were signs really early on that he wanted to have you know power over a lot of people. You know, he wasn't a sex fiend. I'm really sure he wasn't. I think he was a power fiend. And so he used sex with, you know, male and female to get people in a compromised position. So he did everything he could to demean people so that they wouldn't feel that they could stand up to him. And he was a, you know, magician with that. He was just, you know, had it down. So you know, all of that was going on while those of us who were like one step removed did not see it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very um, good point that you make because people not only see the worst of what has happened, so that's why they can't seem to reconcile. You know, how did over nine hundred people, you know, die? That's right. But um, that's why your story is very important, and I, I even think the recording of this interview is very historical because it brings every, it brings more light into ourselves as well and, and into critical thinking as well. But at that, right. see, I understand what you're talking about because I lived in that idealism, but, you know, the 20 and 30-year-olds don't, and it's so different now. But I also lived in a commune myself, and I really understand about the hard work. We used to go out and, and, and get expired food from all the supermarkets and feed the poor in Chicago. And mm-hmm. I, when you were writing about your life, um, I could relate because I lived in a commune for several years and we worked very hard that way and I could really relate in terms of the how you want to better the world and and but I think it's difficult now with this electronic age and I think it's a little difficult but you really brought it you really hit the ballpark in your book your book is so important in the Thank in, you. in terms of the survivors and the victims and I mean there's just times I just cried in the book so I, I really want to promote the book very heavily because it's um, it's very important that people read your book. I really believe that. You know, another part of when I went to Redwood Valley that I think is significant is that Jim was also gifted in finding people who were at that crossroads. Mm. Because, you know, here I was, I had been in, in 
in a Connecticut and certainly made, you know, bad decisions as well as good. I came to California. It was before I kind of settled into a routine. I didn't really have a support group or a non-support group as I usually collected. But I mean, I didn't have these people around me who were part of my daily life. And so that's when I saw Jim Jones. And many of the people that you talk to who went to People's Temple and who survived or the people I knew in People's Temple, they were at that same kind of crossroads when they came across People's Temple. Mm-hmm. Because they found a family. I mean, I thought of Jim as a protector. And early on, when we lived in Redwood Valley, he actually did intercede. I had a boyfriend um, who lived in San Francisco. And when I moved up to Redwood Valley, he kind of kept me on the hook in Redwood Valley. But he had a wife he was living with in San Francisco. And so Jim stepped in and said, you know, okay, Chris, it's time to make a decision. And you're not going to have it both ways with Laura up here and you and your wife down there. Pick one now and we're going to resolve this. We're not going to have this going on. And so, you know, the guy picked the one and, you know, the furthest from Jim, which was (laughs) no big, no surprise. But, you know, so in a way he did step in to protect me when, you know, I wouldn't have known that or nobody was telling me yet that Chris had another girlfriend. So, You know, in a way, Jim set himself up as a protector, and he did that when it didn't, you know, alert anybody to his own lifestyle or what was going on with him. He did protect people, and he had that relationship with almost every family, not every individual in People's Temple, but with every family, he probably helped get somebody out of juvenile hall, get somebody placed out of a foster home, uh, wrote letters to judges to get people out on probation, um, got some kids tutoring so they could bring up their grades or had them placed in a place where they had academic support or got counseling. So it wasn't just that Jim Jones was the leader of this group. He was involved in every aspect. In fact, I mean, he was really a hands-on manager of everything, not only money, but how to support people. Mm -hmm. So he was such a genius that he could do that. People say, you know, at the end, why would 900 people listen to Jim Jones? It was because he had done something for every family that had convinced them that he had their best interests at heart. That's why they would listen to him and follow his instructions, because he had proven himself Uh, to each family, somebody in almost every family had seen a doctor, seen a lawyer, gotten to a hospital, been cared for when she was sick. I mean, he had all these things that built up this faith and this trust in him as a person. So at the end, you know, people felt that he had never, you know, done them wrong before. How could he do it now? He wouldn't be doing it now. And so people trusted him at the end when you know, he was crazed. That was that's another difference I I find with maybe current um, teachers that are have questionable practices, is that it seems reversed where everybody's doing things for the teacher, for the swami or the guru, and giving them, and it, and where with um, Jim Jones, like you said, he was proactive and he he helped everybody at the time. So there was a loyalty bond to that, but I, I don't see that I don't see that nowadays. It seems like now everybody gives everything up for the the teacher and, and, and they don't even get to um, contact them or anything. So let's that, see. 
but see, that's still the difference between Jim's public persona. Mm -hmm. Because in public, he was like that. He was absolutely genuine. He didn't wear diamonds and have a limousine or anything. So the if you look like took a step back and looked at him, you would say, here is a humble guy who's really taking care of the people around him. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, with his inner circle of secretaries and mistresses, they had to give everything, everything. Mm-hmm. So there were no alliances, no marriages, no boyfriends, nothing. Everything was totally gym centered. So in his inner circle, he, everything was done for him. But that but that wasn't public. There was the code of silence like we see in some police departments. Mm-hmm. No one talked about that. So the people in the inner circle, their position with him was precarious, and it really depended on them being absolutely silent about anything that went on behind these closed doors. It's almost like a mafia type of organization. That's exactly right. That's right. Yeah, that's what it reminds me. He even kind of has the look of that, that as well. <laughs> there was a point, an incident in your book where they – they found out, or Jim found out, that you um, had uh, a brief encounter with with a gentleman, and you were heavily disciplined for that. How how did they find out about that? Um, you know, um, so I lived in California from 1970, and in Redwood Valley from 1970 to 1977, and I worked mm-hmm. at the welfare department, and I was on the planning commission, and in 1975. We had talked about moving to Guyana when mm-hmm. one of our young men overdosed in drugs. So he overdosed in heroin and died. And so we started talking about how are we protecting our kids if we live the have them live in drug infested neighborhoods in areas you know that are so dangerous. And so we st- started talking about building a promised land. And we found Guyana, which was in South America next to Venezuela. And we said, you know, here's a country, it's socialist government, it's half black, half East Indian, a sprinkling of white and Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, they speak English. It's like the perfect, perfect, paradise. like heaven on earth, like a paradise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the planning commission, about 100 of us went down in 1975. And I loved it. We had differences of opinion. Actually, survivors have a difference of opinion on almost every single thing. So if you talk to David Wise and you talk to this person and that person, every person has a very unique very unique yeah. expression. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all true. So anyway, I loved it. From the moment I got off the plane in Guyana and I saw the beautiful children and I saw the tropics and I saw... You know, everything that I saw, I loved Guyana. So in March of 1977, so exactly seven years after I joined, I Jim asked me to move to Guyana. And my job was going to be in Georgetown, which is the capital. Mm-hmm. And I would uh, work in Georgetown and do a couple public relations, a little bit, not with government, but locally, and pick up people at the airport who were flying in and get residency papers and insurance and things like that. And then I would fill our boat, the Kudjo, and the ride from Georgetown to Jonestown was 24 hours by boat. Wow. So it would go 12 hours up the coastline and 12 hours on the internal rivers. So my job was to fill our boat with all the replacement parks for the machinery, all the food for the community, and all the people who flew in, you know, would go up on the boat. Mm -hmm. And then it would turn around and come back, and my job was to fill it again. So for about a year, I stayed in Georgetown, although I made trips out to Jonestown. Basically, I lived in Georgetown and filled the boat every three or five days. So I saw all the most beautiful parts 
of Guyana. I saw where they had the pineapples and I saw where they had the coconuts on trees where I go buy bags. So, but that was my job. Um, towards the end, I was doing, you know, all the purchasing and everything. And then I was picking up, you know, maybe 15 people several times a week who flew into Georgetown airport an hour from our house. And I had the only car, so I would make a trip out to the airport at midnight, pick up the people, bring them back, and go back for another load of people and bring them back. And so um, I met a man who said, you know, he had friends with vans. And so he could save me a trip sometime, and he and his friends would go out and help pick them up at the airport. So we started this kind of a lightweight relationship, and then we had a date. We went out, and we had sex. We came back and, you know, everybody in the house, all 50 people or probably at that time, there were about 25 people saw me come in, you know, after we had had relations. And so they said, Laura, did you have sex with a guy? And so I said, yeah. And so anyway, then I was sent into Jonestown and I um, was put in the, you know, in the public forum and they said, how could you disappoint Jim? And how could you, you know, not stand up and be somebody totally um, respected and everything in Georgetown by having an affair with a man in Georgetown? And so um, one person slapped me and then I was put on the public services crew, which was our Mm kind of like a work camp for people who didn't do the right thing. So I was on the public services crew for about two weeks. And so you had to run every place you were going. You had to eat last, shower last, get up first. So, you know, it was a very fundamentally uh, harsh work camp setting for a couple of weeks. And then I was put in charge of the public services crew. And then I was, you know, in charge of an agricultural crew. So it moved on. But in Jonestown, one of the things that was both good and bad, really, was that we had our own everything. We had our own system of governance. We had our own system of discipline, if you blew it. We had our own system of, you know, trying to fix somebody who, you know, wasn't belonging in the community. So in a way, that was good because we were held accountable by friends, and that's when it made sense. It was bad if the situation was too severe. Like, we did have a pedophile in Jonestown, And we thought that we could just watch the person and that didn't work. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we should have thrown somebody out, we didn't do that. And um, people who were unhappy, who acted out because they were unhappy, they were disciplined. But really, it wasn't a discipline issue. They should have just been let go. And so, I mean, I think that anybody who didn't want to stay in Jonestown should have been asked to leave or let leave or whatever. And I think we should have kicked some other people out too who were just pains because we had 900 people there. Even when Congressman Ryan came and tried to talk to people, he said, you know, I can tell by your community and by what you're doing, many, many people love it here. Mm -hmm. And when he left, only at the most 30 people were going to leave with him. That seemed to devastate Jim though, according to um, some accounts. Absolutely. See, he did not want one person. One would have been too many for Jim. And so, you know, and so even the people who were leaving told Congressman Ryan, you know, I have to go with you because no matter what Jim says, he's never going to let me go. 
He's never going to let anyone go. And that was absolutely true. He was not going to, you know, they said, don't, if Jim says he's going to let us go in two weeks, don't believe it. That is not going to happen. Jim will never let us go. Did people people escape from from Jim from time to time? And if they did, did Jim ever retaliate in any way towards people that left? um, You know, in a way, the saddest case is the one with Larry Layton because Larry's sister left um, and she wrote Seductive Poison. So she left and she came back to the United States. She tried to alert people about things that were going on in Jonestown because she was part of the inner circle. So she saw a lot of things the rest of us never saw. Mm -hmm. So she tried to alert people and went to Congress. She talked to people and everything. So once she left, in a way, her brother was on the hot spot to prove his loyalty. I see. And so his mother was dying of cancer. So then she eventually did succumb to cancer. And then Larry was there by himself with no other relatives. And his sister, you know, was considered a traitor and Mm -hmm. Jim never would drop that topic, you know. And so then Larry was in a position the last few days that, you know, Congressman Ryan was gonna leave and then, you know, everything was Jim's instruction. There was yeah. nobody there's nobody who did anything spontaneously without Jim setting it up. There was nothing, you know, surprising, nothing unexpected. Jim had his hand in everything. Everything that happened in Jonestown was being set up by either Jim or his personal secretaries who took over for him when he was incoherent. So, you know, Larry was set up to go to the airstrip and do some shooting. He didn't even shoot Ryan. He did shoot at the airstrip, though. And then he was the only person who served time in the United States. He served time for conspiracy to kill mm-hmm. a congressman in 18 years. But really, it was because, you know, his sister left and Jim made him responsible for all the ills to humanity and put him in this really tough situation. And... um So, you know, Jim was very spiteful and he didn't want people to leave and he would, you know, do whatever it takes to intimidate other people not leaving. So not many people were able to escape. I think think that's what really is an enigma with um, with Jim Jones is is how could he have that kind of hold over so many people? Yeah, you can understand a small group, you know, um, but actually it's not unusual at, at all because of the, the kind of the group the group think so it's it's not that unusual especially as you say jim had such a hands-on position with everybody so that explains that puts a lot of insight into it and so i mean jim what we saw i mean what i've seen a lot since i came back and i mm-hmm. could get a, a healthier perspective is he would target certain people Either he would target people who seemed to be a little bit more original or had a little bit more rebellion to what he was doing, and he would target them and make them the bad guys, or somehow he would, you know, target certain people, and not everybody would see it, but if you looked, and if, like, if you kind of realized where he was going with it, you could follow it along, but it would be sporadic if you didn't watch it carefully, mm-hmm. and so he was just you know, a master of hiding what he was doing, but he was absolutely targeting, you know, people who were within the temple, people he thought he couldn't trust or people who, you know, saw through his facade or something. He did target people. 
And so, I mean, I think the Layton family really did get the raw end of all of that because it was just a very difficult time for everybody. And they, you know, ended up, Larry ended up being the scapegoat of everything that went on in Jonestown because everybody else was dead. Yeah. I like to bring up that that point in terms of um, how you found out and how you recovered from it because I think it would be helpful to a lot of people recovering from undue influence because they'll see you as an example of someone who who was able to recover or able to um, understand the situation so I, I feel it would help a lot of people that are struggling with kind of a, a post cult situation um, if you could you know um, elaborate on that to what you feel comfortable in because I, I know okay. your, your book was actually very detailed but um. yeah um you know so i don't know how much background to give because if people never heard of jonestown in mm -hmm. a way to skip to the survival it skips over really the most important part which is when 918 people died so i'm yeah. going to just kind of backtrack to, to some of those events and then move forward, if that's okay. That's fine, that's fine. Okay. Um, so um, after I moved into Jonestown, in Jonestown, you know, we worked every day. We worked, you know, Monday through Sunday without a day off until the summer of 1978 when Jim's wife, Marceline, came down. Mm -hmm. And she came to Guyana and she said, you know, people need a break. Let's, you know, let's do a Sunday afternoon off from now on. So... Starting then, we started taking a half a day off, but most of us were so driven that we just found other, you know, things to become completely absorbed by. So it's not like anybody just laid around reading books. You know, that that didn't seem to happen, at least not with my friends and with me. We just got focused on something else we'd been really wanting to do. So... But so we were really busy. We were building a cottage a week. We had electricity. We had mm -hmm. lights. We had three meals a day for a thousand people, 24 hours from the nearest store, really. And so, you know, it was a very busy time for all of us. And so all of us pretty much thought that once we were settled and we had enough cottages and we had enough of everything, uh, we would be able to relax, but we saw that as a couple of years out. Mm -hmm. And so the people who were the least happy were the ones who said, you know what, but I don't want to do this for two, uh, several years. This is really hard work, and there are really other things I'd like to do. Mm -hmm. So even within the community, there were pockets of people who were not happy that we were like being so single-minded into build, build, build. Mm -hmm. But we didn't talk about it. In People's Temple always, and especially in Jonestown, you could not talk about any dissent. You could not talk about any criticism of Jim or any criticism of the schedule. Everything was very carefully controlled. And if it was really very much like the Gestapo when the children would hear their parents talking about things and the children would go and tell the teacher or the somebody else and then the parents were held accountable. It was just like that in Jonestown. Wow. You could not talk about it. For me, because I love Jonestown, people were not going to confide in me and so I didn't have any clue about the people who were unhappy. I would hear it from time to time in public meetings, but, you know, it didn't apply to me because I was happy there. I had no intentions of ever leaving. So I was completely oblivious to this whole sub-conversation. Mm -hmm. So 
and um, so in 1978 in Guyana, Jim was dealing with all these things back at home in San Francisco. The New West Magazine was going to come out on a, with an expose. Their investigative reporter found that Jim had been, you know, soliciting in a bathroom in Los Angeles. I heard about that. Yeah, and Jim, you know, told everybody it was because he was running an inter- interracial church that he was set up and stuff like that. So, you know, he had an excuse for everything. But the reporter was saying, you know, who's Jim Jones? How come he has so much power with all of our local and national leaders? when we don't even know about him. He's never been vetted. He's never been investigated. Nobody can say a bad word about him. And so the investigative reporter was coming out with these reports. Um, Some people who had left People Simple had gone to Congress. And finally, uh, Congressman Ryan from San Mateo said he was going to come check out Jonestown because he had just enough reports that he felt like he had to see it for himself. So... All of that was happening in the summer of 1978, but most of us in Jonestown, you know, we were just working really hard and we were pretty exhausted and whatever Jim said, he may have said a lot, but we were exhausted and we were trying, you know, like finish up the meeting, let's go to bed or let's go do what else. So really he taught, he would talk to people who were already distracted and exhausted. So Whatever he did or didn't say, in a way, is kind of a moot point because we didn't absorb that there was a crisis going on mm. in San Francisco. But we, he did talk about Congressman Ryan wanting to come down, and he said, but, you know, this is our plot of land. We left the United States, so they have no reason to come here. We're not part of the United States. Exactly. But Congressman Ryan said, you know, these are my American citizens, and it is the responsibility of the U.S. government to oversee what's going on with U.S. citizens afar, even if it's a religious group, which is, you know, the other thing that Jim tried to say. We just are expressing freedom of religion and all that. But Congressman Ryan was set to come, and Jim knew it, and the rest of the community just went on working, 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 while Jim and this small group of people got more and more paranoid. Jim was into drugs. He was paranoid from the drugs. Mm-hmm. He was mentally ill with this, like a narcissistic personality disorder and, you know, a number of different issues. Mm-hmm. His ego driven. He didn't want people to leave. He felt personally shattered if somebody didn't, you know, wouldn't follow him all the way. So all that was going on. We were working hard. Jim was not in the community as much. He I think his keepers only let him out when he was really coherent. So there would be days that we didn't see him. We just heard him on the loudspeakers, but we didn't see him. So um, at the end of October, Jim sent me into Georgetown to take over my old job. You know, he called me to his cottage and he said, "Okay, Laura, I'm going to trust you again. Mm -hmm. You think you can go to Georgetown, relieve these people who want to come back and not get yourself in trouble and in a relationship and all that? And I said, yeah, I'm good. So he sent me back to Georgetown. And, you know, at that point, I or when I first came back, I thought that was just a fluke that I was saved from being in Jonestown that day. But as I reflect on it more, you know, the person in charge of the Georgetown house was Sharon Amos. And I had worked with her at the welfare department for seven years and she had become a good friend. And she was Jim's inner circle. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, probably he thought if he gave Sharon a message to kill herself and for the people in Georgetown, 
Oh, you reached down to kill ourselves. If Sharon told me to do it and said that Jim should said to do it, I would probably kill myself. So I think he thought that I was an easy touch. If Sharon told me to do something, I would follow the instruction. Mm -hmm. So that changed from the book when I thought it was a fluke, when I thought more about it. Nothing, as I said before, you know, nothing is a surprise. Nothing is left to chance. And so he thought he was just sending me into Georgetown because I would follow the instruction. Yes. So anyway, Ryan came, Congressman Ryan came. He stopped by the house in Georgetown and shook our hands. And then he went out to Jonestown. He, we had put on this wonderful performance for him and he loved it. And then when he stepped off the stage, people started handing him notes. That night and the next day, mm -hmm. people handed the media and the people in his entourage notes to say, help me, get me out of here. I want to leave. So the next day, Congressman Ryan and about 20 people did leave Jonestown and go to the airstrip. And as soon as they were gone, Jim sent another truckload of people with guns to the airstrip to kill Congressman Ryan and to kill, you know, whoever else, but for sure yeah. to kill the congressman. So at the airstrip, five people were killed, Congressman Ryan and Patty Parks, who was a member of People's Temple in Guyana, who was at the airstrip with her husband and daughters. And um, three of the photographers and reporters who were with Congressman Ryan, they were all shot and killed. And a number of other people were wounded, including Jackie Spear, who's an assemblywoman in California now. Right. So, but they survived. And then, you know, they came back to, Guyana, to Jonestown and Jim had everybody in the pavilion. He said, you're all co-conspirators with me to kill a congressman. So there is no way to go back. There's no way to go back to the United States because we've killed a congressman. Okay. And things will never be the same. And you don't have any money because you gave it to me. You don't have any house because you gave it to me. Your relatives don't want to have anything to do with you because you're coming back as felons. Mm -hmm. um, your children could be taken away when we get back and put in foster care. And enough people had enough horrible experiences with foster care to never wish that on their children. And so he went on like this, coercing people for an hour and a half. And then towards the end, when people were just exhausted from his talking, he, his nurses and secretaries went along the side where the kids were sitting and gave the kids the poison, shot the syringes of poison into the children. Mm -hmm. And so that just took any choice away from the parent when they saw that, you know, 20 or 30 feet away, the children were given the poison and they were dying. Oh, my God. So if there had been any chance up until then, yeah, you know, so he just took, you know, he wouldn't leave it to chance. No. He had to do, he had, he just went ahead and did that. And not even just him, but his whole group, that same mm -hmm. inner circle of about 10 people who knew the plan. Yeah. You had mentioned so, that he had planned this because he had bought the, the poison was already bought. Right. The cyanide was in Jonestown at yeah, least six months, maybe even a year mm -hmm. before. And so this inner crew of probably about 10 people, they knew the whole plan mm -hmm. about the poison and everything before that day. So when all that was happening in Jonestown, then somebody got on the radio and they called Georgetown and San Francisco and L.A. and Redwood Valley. And they said, OK, everybody in Jonestown is dead are dying and it's time for all of you to commit revolutionary suicide mm -hmm. so i was in georgetown and i had the car and sharon amos got the call the you know the um coded message to kill ourselves and so she sent me across town to get the basketball team 
our basketball team was in town in Georgetown. So Stephen Jones and Jimmy Jones, two of Jim's sons were there and some other people who, you know, were part of leadership. And so I went and got them and they came back and um, Sharon met with them up in the back bedroom away from the rest of the 50 of us in the house. Mm -hmm. And she told them that she had gotten this message and it was time to kill ourselves. And Stephen Jones, who was just 19, said, you know, absolutely not. It's all over. Let me try and get out to Jonestown. I'm going to stop it. But, you know, you couldn't get out to Jonestown. It was too late. It was too far to work it out. But he got on the phone and he, you know, every half hour he would call Los Angeles and San Francisco Mm -hmm. and Red Valley and say, do not follow any instruction you get from Jim. Absolutely not. It's all over. And he really stopped anything that might have happened. In Georgetown and in the United States, the other, you know, zealots and people who were members waiting to come over to Guyana, he stopped everything and said, do not follow the instruction, it's all over. And so he didn't even tell the rest of us in the house. Mm -hmm. And so we went about our business that day, you know, booked as usual when we came back to the house. The police had taken over and Sharon Amos had killed her three children and herself. Oh, and so she was the only one in the house. The, so those four were killed. You know, ki- she mm-hmm. killed herself and her children. And the rest of us, you know, were there. And that's the first we knew of anything that went on in Jonestown. Yeah. I didn't, um, I never heard that about, uh, I had emailed um, Stephen Jones a few times. And... Um, I never, even from David Parker, Wise, who kept in touch with him quite a bit, I never knew that about him stopping um, Mm -hmm. the orders of Jim. It might be known, but nobody, uh, he didn't mention it, neither did David Parker. Right. Yeah, I think think Stephen, you know, he's such a wise person. I mean, he had to Mm -hmm. grow up so early, but he's just a wonderful, thoughtful person, and so, you know, he probably thought, of course he would do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like it's nothing to wave a flag about. Of course he would stop it. You know what I mean? Like, that's the way yeah. he is. But you would. So. But on the other hand, with him being so under his father, you know, you could see, you know, you could see where it could go the other way as well, and, and that he was a victim of his dad. But For he, sure. Yeah, but he did. He did say uh, anything that he's written, we could use in in a magazine. Uh-huh. And he almost did an interview, but I, he says that he's very misunderstood, and um, yeah. he doesn't want, he wants the right perspective in, in us presenting Jonestown. That's why we're very insistent on, on direct interviews, because mm-hmm. no matter what you read, it, unless you've lived through it and you've been there, it's it's not the same. I mean, I'm, right. I'm going to read a lot of factual books, and but it. I think this interview with between you and David Parker Wise has had the, the most impact on our perspective and our and our um, the way we'll present because the the issue is um, is all primarily on Jonestown and then mm-hmm. we're going to, a little bit into the terrorist cults which is very different but we feel it's a little bit in in the in the in the realm kind of mm-hmm. so because right. of the mind control yeah. and and I told my husband who's the editor I said we can't do this third party we really have to know and feel it yeah that's right you know and between uh, corresponding with stephen jones and david parker and you i don't know if there's anybody you can you can recommend that might talk to us as well that's i think is is the real perspective we want to put out there because (laughs) it you know 
it's just really terrible what I hear. When I mentioned we're doing an issue in Jonestown, everybody was saying, oh, that's been done, and, you know, and, and a lot of the crass jokes and everything, and, and it made mm -hmm. me really sick, you know? I said, we didn't learn anything. If, that's if, right. You know, if that's your perspective, you know, this could happen over and over and over again. It happens a lot. I mean, I was in in uh, Grand Rapids last spring, last fall, and I was at a library and at the university at uh, Grass Valley State University. Mm -hmm. And I, while I was out there after an event at the college and after the event at the library, two different young women came up to me and said they had just gotten out of a cult and they were just struggling to survive and that mm -hmm. I was really inspiring to show them that they could keep going forward. But, I mean, it's happening right under our noses everywhere we look it's it, not over it it's not over it's not over and um it seems like we think we think because we're so electronically advanced now that we could you know we could google people and everything but it's not mm -hmm. we still have the same vulnerability we still if any want that idealism and um there's a lot of dangerous um, teachers and practices out there. That's right. And it targets and a lot of, yeah, and it targets, a, a, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's why, like, the terrorist cults we want to get into, too. So that's mm -hmm. why uh, um, that's important to us. But, I mean, even politicians are revving up hate. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, so in a way that makes people run to something that looks hopeful. Yes. I mean, to if every time you look around, you hear hate and vindictiveness and, you know, this spewing racism and things. If that's all you hear, then you do look for some other kind of communication in the world. And, you know, you're not going to use drugs, but I mean, you need to have some um, some way to make a difference, to make it not overwhelm you. And so that's that's kind of why I do it. I mean, I am not going to, I didn't want to be run by bullies in the sixties and I'm mm -hmm. not going to have it now that I'm in my sixties. <laughs> I, yeah. you know, I am ready to, to have an impact. And so I work a lot on immigration and civil liberties and humanitarian things. I'm a Quaker. I try and do a lot of things so that every day, and I'm a teacher, you know, I've been a longtime teacher. I just retired, but I still speak all over the country at universities and other venues. So I feel like, you know, we ha we can't stop now. Things are as bad as ever, if not worse. So we have a big job ahead of us to stop this prejudice and stop this hate that's surrounding us. We can't live like that. That's no. not a way to live. I was really surprised how our um, publication took off because it started off like almost like a benign newsletter. And, uh -huh. we, and we got... Uh, a circulation over 150,000 people and thousands of people writing us about undue influence. And then we thought, this is a, a, an epidemic. This is serious. Yeah. And we just think, you know, Scientology or Jim Jones. Yes, that's very serious. But there's a lot of little subcultures out there that, mm -hmm. is, that is just as dangerous. And, and they seem to follow a pattern, you know, like where you can't, it, where the leader thinks for you you know, takes over and thinks for you. And that's um, right. So we're, you know, we're made a big shift um, into a very serious topic with this issue. And mm -hmm. we hope we do a, a you know, a, a good job. And that's why we want to make sure everybody, um, you know, puts their stamp of approval on their interview. And, and it's, it's, 
you know, if you want to add to it, if you want to take away, you know, that's yeah. fine because this is your voice and it's very important that you're happy with it because thousands of people and young people will read what you have to say. So it's very important that everything is exactly the way you want to present it. So um, mm -hmm. that's why I like transcribing and I don't care if I, if you give it back to me 20 times and say, could you change <laughs> this? No, I really don't because mm -hmm. I will do it. So same with David Parker Wise, he's very easy, but I said, no, you need to look over your transcript, you know. Yeah. And um, and Stephen Jones gave us permission to use any of his writings on the um, Jonestown website, which I thought was uh -huh. very generous of him. And we yeah. are going to use, I think, a, a couple of his um, writings. I thought that was generous. Yeah, and, yeah. Stephen is really a doll. He's sweet. I love Yeah. I, 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 you know, my son is at 26 now. He's going to turn 27. And so he really has gone with me to all the anniversaries. Mm -hmm. We go up to the Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland. And over the years, you know, he's met Stephen and Jimmy a number of different times. And I, I'm really just so delighted to have him meet people of such a character. Yeah. I mean, I just think, you know, around us, you see people who are kind of mealy mouth or they have mm -hmm. particular issues. But... When you meet people who are courageous, yes. I mean, that there's something about that that gives you the inspiration to be courageous when it's your time. It's not your time every day, but there are things that happen that you just have to take a stand. Mm -hmm. And that kind of courage just reinforces it when you've seen it in other people, I think. And so Stephen is certainly one of the most courageous people I know. Absolutely. David also uh, mentioned, um, he, he mentioned a little... Uh, a little piece on Stephen too, because I'm going to include because I think it would make Stephen happy to know that he's impacted people. He, and um, I would like to read a positive, um, positive um, remarks towards him because I know uh -huh. he's been under a lot of criticism. He's been under some criticism in the past. Uh, oh, always. Yeah, they always blame Stephen. He was the kid. Exactly. He they was blame teenager. And, but he stopped everything. I mean, yeah. he's he's the epitome of what you shouldn't attack and so somehow he's been attacked that's ridiculous yeah they, they say he was you know participated I, I won't it's just just bs really i'm not even going to um repeat it it's just mm -hmm. it's just terrible just people like to just make stupid ignorant remarks yeah people do <laughs> how many survivors are there um or or uh, ex people's temples members that you that you know of or you you think might be out there um, you know, there are about 80 or 85 of us on November 18th who were in some way, were in Guyana or the area. So, you know, we had about 45 or 50 at the house in Georgetown. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, 900, almost 1,000 in Jonestown and on the river. Some people mm -hmm. were out on the boats. Uh, some people were in Venezuela getting medical care. There was one young man in the hospital in Georgetown because a truck ran over him. Mm -hmm. uh, there were people out at different you know, sites within Guyana where they were selling items and doing the exchanges and some people were flying in that day. So of all, there were about 80 or 85 people who were in and around Guyana that day. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, it's 37 and a half years later. So yeah. every year about four or five people 
die who were part of the temple. So both those in Guyana and those who are here in the United States waiting to go. We had a huge group waiting to go here too. And that's why when Jim, you know, made the call for people to kill themselves, Stephen really did save a lot of lives because I'm sure that some people would have followed the instructions thinking that Jim sent it. So Stephen, you know, really saved many lives with that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that he. I'm pos- Not sure. I'm positive. That's what. Yep. That's what's happened. And um, you know, maybe so, I'll. You know. Okay. No, I, um, I was just going to say, there are two other things that I think are really important when you think about people's temple. Okay. Um, if you had a child today and your child said, I'm going to join this cult or this group or something, yeah. um, now you'd say, yeah, but don't forget people's temple. Here are people who were committed, well-meaning, dedicated people mm-hmm. who got tricked by a con man. So whatever it looks like, appearances are deceiving. You know, you can't tell a book by its cover. You can't tell a person by the public persona. You have to, you know, do the litmus test to see what's real. Mm-hmm. Um, when we joined People's Temple, there was no historical um, situation where there was a leader, a benevolent-looking leader who killed a thousand people. And so now you can refer people, don't forget Jim Jones. Don't forget People's Temple. Now that's a point of reference that you can use when you're talking to people who are joining communities. Mm -hmm. But then there was no such thing. So we couldn't reflect back. And so part of the reason we were caught so by surprise is it was the first time in history that the American citizens were led astray so that a thousand people died because of a leader. That's very true. And so, that's, yeah, that is, that's and, and people don't get it because they say, oh yeah, how could you do that? Well, mm-hmm. we've never heard of a situation that had gone wrong. No, this is the first time. And so because we were the first ones in a way, it's a very important lesson for many reasons, but also, just to get an understanding of what we thought, here's this guy who had helped each one of us along the way, or each family. He took us to Guyana, and we hadn't seen him do anything outrageous that got us completely not believing. And then he killed, you know, 980 yeah. people. How could you see that coming? No. no what flags went up? You say, okay, so, you know, I didn't like this in Georgetown. Well, we'll be able to fix it because we're here for the long term. Mm-hmm. That was our perspective. It was never, okay, well, you know, we had anything to fear from Jim. He was the one who had inspired us to do our best work or something, you know? Yeah. Dave Parker Wise touched upon a little bit. He said that, um, you know, he was just simply a a church pastor at the time. He was simply, you know, it was a very, very um, honest grassroots um, movement. Nobody would have known anything that... Otherwise, and, he, and not only, and he was very kind, and he was humble, and he helped everybody. He mentioned that as well. So he also um, added a lot of, which is good because it backs your interview quite a bit. But it's good, mm-hmm. to, but yet it's a different perspective because he had his own inner mechanisms that attracted him to Jim, which he goes mm-hmm. into, which is is different, a lot different from yours. So, um, and it's true, people just don't don't realize it, and they see like the post Jim. Of That's the right. And they don't see, you know, that it never happened before and and how he did a lot of good and he was very respected. They always just see the, the horrible, you know, aftermath of the murders, but they don't 
So there's a, a limited understanding there, mm -hmm. and they think, well, this can never happen again. It, it can happen again. The other thing is, I mean, the whole identity of a con man is he has a particular goal, mm -hmm. and you don't know his goal. All you see is what he wants you to see as he leads you to the goal. So Jim was always a con man, and it was pretty apparent once he got to San Francisco anyway. But, you know, looking back, I can see it so clearly. Okay, here's a flag, here's yeah. a flag, here's a flag. But at the time... You know, the con man identity was not something I recognized. And so I didn't see through it. But, you know, we're conned all the time. We're yeah. conned into, you know, whether it's Madoff making away with millions of dollars from people, mm -hmm. you know, who have lawyers and everything checking out their choices and still they were suckered into things. I mean, Jim was able to sucker us into thinking that he was really all about the message. Yeah. And really, he was all about the power and the message was nice, too, but the power was what kept him going mm -hmm. and made him end it because he didn't want to share it. He didn't want somebody else coming in and saying, oh, yeah, I'm in charge. I uh, took over from Jim Jones and look what I've done in Jonestown. Mm -hmm. He would never share the glory of anything he did. Mm -hmm. And so rather than like there was a triumvirate set up in Jonestown to try and wield power mm -hmm. and say, you know, Jim, step down, let this triumvirate take over. He was never going to let anybody take over. No, so it, it wasn't really a vision. It was exactly what you said, a con man and a power game, because he did not have the vision of, of humanitarianism or bringing, you know, heaven on, on earth or anything. It, it was just a, a means to an end for him. And I mean, I think that like with the vision, there are things that he did through the years, like he and his wife were the first white couple to adopt a black child in the state of Indiana. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there are things that he did that were absolutely awesome early on, mm -hmm. that he would fight the powers that be to adopt, you know, his son, Jimmy. And yeah. I mean, I think that over the years, you know, he was somebody who believed in a lot of the causes that I believe in. But I think power just corrupted him and corrupted him more. You know, the, the quote, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts mm -hmm. absolutely. That was really, you know, his trick knee, that yeah. he was just corrupted by power. And he was susceptible to it, you know, for whatever reason. He was seeking out the power and then he got it. And he didn't know how to make that successful. He had to abuse that power, yeah. which Plus, most leaders and, do. Yeah. And also there was like drug abuse and and. and you know, probably most likely mental illness behind That's behind right. him as well. So it was like a, a complete toxic combination That's of, right. of um, you know, of, that totally you know, led to this tragedy. Mm -hmm. I wanted to um, ask also if you um, have any uh, like events planned that I can post right now. Um, I know you have a, a Facebook page, which I like. Is mm -hmm. everything pretty much posted? I think you, you post everything on your Facebook yeah. page pretty well. Uh, I posted on that. And then, you know, I have questions all the time. Like I'm having another interview tomorrow from a high school student who's mm -hmm. part of the National History Campaign. And so what I've started doing is writing my answers. I'm posting my answers on my website. Oh, okay. So if somebody sends me 10 questions, I answer them, and then I post the questions and answers on my web on my website, jonestownsurvivor.com. And so for me, 
because sometimes, you know, I have an insight that I haven't had before, mm-hmm. or I think, or somebody asks me a question that's an unusual question, and then I answer it, and then I say, you know, one, so one person has heard that, but really, that might clarify some point for a lot of other people. So now, whenever I do any of those kinds of responses, I post them on my website. So that's been a really interesting change, I think. I'm going to um, put your website on the on the front of my web uh, of my page as a very direct link um, with the book and a link to the book. And I and I didn't know that. I think I went to your page. Because uh, I had uh, a bout with pneumonia, so I had went to your page like probably two months ago. So I haven't uh-huh. went to your. So I'll go to your page after we speak because that sounds really. That's a great idea. It really yeah. is. And you know my um my Facebook my uh, website had a glitch, but I just got it fixed. So okay. all everything's current and everything, and I plan to write some tomorrow. That's I'm setting site aside time tomorrow to blog more so that'll be a good time but i've put everything on the website and it's all available now oh that's so great. and so and i have my book in audio and and uh kindle uh, ebook and everything so yeah. you can order it right off of amazon it's easy to get oh that's good um, i ordered the, i love i still love hard copy books i haven't converted to kindle yet <laughs> So I I know. And my friends who are in my age group, they're all Kindle people. They said, Debbie, come on, you know, you know. And I said, no, I have to I have to highlight and put markers in my books and everything. So I I bought a hard, I bought a soft copy. I love it. You have your photographs in there and stuff too. Oh, and you know, that reminds me too. I also have posted 2,200 pictures on on Flickr.com. Okay. So um, it's under so it's f l i c k r dot com, and if you go into flickr dot com, it's not so user friendly. Mm-hmm. You have to do a search, um, and then what I did is, if you search my name, Laura okay. Johnston Cole, uh-huh. it'll bring you to all the pictures I put, and then you just segue over to where it says um, People's Temple Photo Gallery. Okay. So, if you search for my name, because if you search for temple, it comes up with every temple in the world. Oh, all right. <laughs> no. so, like all the, you know, all these temples in Japan, like everyone. So you can't really search people's temple and get there directly. Mm-hmm. So if you just search for my name, since I've posted all the pictures, um, you can just go into the gallery that way into the albums. And I have it divided by um, Indianapolis, Redwood Valley, San Francisco, wow. and lots and lots of pictures of Jonestown and the people in Jonestown and lots of pictures since, you know, at the cemetery in Oakland and different presentations and different media um, presentations. So it's everything is there. So it's a really good way because I am a visual person. And so now when I do a presentation, in fact, I could send you a PowerPoint presentation if you want to have access to it. It's small enough, small enough to email it. And uh, it just gives you some other information about People's Temple. And you could use those pictures. Oh, I would love that. Because what I wanted to do for the cover is, um, and I was very stuck on it because, it, you know, I had first put um, Jim Jones on the cover and I felt really like, no. It's, and now you, you just inspired me because I want to put a collage of, you know, of the victims on the cover as a memorial to them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, between you and, and David Parker Wise and Severance Jones articles, it, it, I think it will be a very good balance of what happened and a different, a, a real point of view 
not yeah. just a perspective, but a real point of view. So um, you actually inspired me on the cover because I actually was very stuck on, I, I design all the graphics and my husband edits and I, and I do all the interviews and, and make sure everybody's happy with their, um, mm -hmm. with their edits as well. And then my husband will, will constantly, you know, make changes. So you yeah. just inspired me for the cover actually. So I'm almost oh, good. I'll send you those in just a few minutes. Cause I have them right on my, my, uh, laptop and I can send them right to you. Oh, and, good. uh, and I, I noticed when I showed my presentation Friday night, there are a couple things I need to clean up, but I think okay. since you're in the middle, I'm going to send them to you. I don't have to clean, have time to clean it up right now, mm -hmm. but um, one of them is, you know, ready to go and they all have labels, but one of them says like add title here at the PowerPoint and stuff that I don't really like, but the pictures are awesome. So. Okay. Okay. Cause that would be, that would be, I think to, to have a true, cause all the time when you see, Articles on Jonestown. It's always the the horrible, the tragic. You know. That's right. You know, it's, it's you gotta think of the families, or you know, it's you know what I'm saying. It's just um, I there's, agree. There's, a, there's a different way to put it. You know, to to commemorate them as they were as human beings and and alive. You know, nobody wants to see a family picture like that. You know, um, they all had family or relatives or some somebody loved them. So you that's have to right. look at it that way. So that's, that's what right. that was really that that's why I was stuck between I didn't want a, a picture of Jim Jones with the glasses I didn't want you know the, the, mm -hmm. the so you thank you for that inspiration it was like you, you the little light bulb was flickering and you kind of pulled the cord so thank you <laughs> so I should say you know cover cover inspired you know by you I should give you the credit for it actually <laughs> oh, no you're fine take all the credit for putting it together that's so, good so but I. I don't know if you have a, a Facebook account I, I, or if you're very private about your friends list, but I would certainly like to keep in touch um, to Facebook or I can just email you and let you know what the progress it is. Because I'll probably transcribe this in the next couple of weeks and um, start sending you um, some drafts. But I, I'll send you like, um, you know, I'll clean it up really good. So it's not like it's going to be this horrible thing. So, it, <laughs> you know, because you'd be like, oh, my God, she doesn't know what she's doing. So that way, it's just maybe a little tweaking or maybe you just want to even add something. Maybe you want to expand on something you said or you want it more clarified. That's fine. You know, so. Okay, great. Yeah, that sounds fine. So you can either you have my email, but also my Jonestown Survivor Facebook page is fine, too. So okay. um, I because I I am a kind of a media addict or a uh, technology addict. So I have to check my Facebook and my email often. So you, however, it's easy for you works for me. Oh, that's that's fine. I, 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 also, I like your um, Facebook page already. Um, I, I just wish it would come up uh, more often in my newsfeed because I'm on so many pages, like a thousand yeah. pages. So I wish yeah. that. So I'll just have to put a note, like I'll bookmark it so I can just check and see where you're speaking or, or what you're doing. But I'm definitely going to visit your site today. And uh, okay. a lot of um, people in the anti-cult media with very big organizations, they're like um, so excited about this interview and wanted to know more about you. So I hope that that can generate some awareness and book sales and, um, um, uh, you know, towards you because they're all asking me, you know, please check in with us after you interview her because mm -hmm. we want to know, you know, there's an intense um, 
it's almost like it, you know, there's there's a piece of the puzzle missing, and, and yeah. the survivors hold it. So, you know. yeah, you know, there are a couple things I should tell you too. Another okay. thing is that um, we fifteen survivors are going to go back to Jonestown in the fall. And uh, we have a documentary crew that's going to come and do a documentary of our revisit to both Georgetown wow. and Jonestown. So that's in the works, and I'm going to find out in a couple of weeks the exact date and um, what's going to happen to it and kind of the full picture. So I'll put that on my Facebook as soon as I get it. So that's a really, I mean, a, just an awesome experience. Yeah. Also, there are a couple of books coming out this year about People's Temple. So, um, and Stephen is going to be in a documentary. Um, he's had his own, you know, a documentary person um, uh, contacted him, and she's doing a wonderful documentary about him. And um, let's see what else. I don't know. There are several different uh, dramas coming out on TV, like. Oh, yeah. Uh, I heard there's one coming things. out uh, on TV um, about Jonestown. It was all over the news about a month ago. So yeah. I'll follow so, up with that. There are a bunch of different things that are coming out and other books about Jonestown. So. This year and next, leading up to the 40th anniversary, mm -hmm. probably people who have not heard of Jonestown are going to be hearing about it one way or the other. That's, and um, also, if, if ever um, you want to use the, the issue as a fundraiser for anything, there's an affiliate program that I run. You can get up to like 90% um, of the profits. So um, you would just run like a, a way to buy the magazine, and then you would get 90%, because I think that's the most I could set it to. So if you ever yeah. like want to use it for a fundraiser or for anything like that, you know, you and also when it comes out, we'll send you hard copies of it, because we send, we, um, it's through Amazon, we're, we're in 50 different ebook outlets, but it's also through Amazon as a soft cover, like mm. a book, because we find that people who participated really want soft covers, so we go... Yeah. We don't sell a lot because everybody's into ebooks and it's cheaper. Yes. Um, <laughs> it is, but yeah, I like to have a few copies because I'm proud of you know what we try to do, and, and a lot mm -hmm. of the people like to have. And what I would do is um, we always send a couple complimentary copies, and then we could always set it up that you could get it get it wholesale. You know, we can give you a code that you can get it wholesale as well. So if you want to ever present it on a on anything, you know. Oh, I'd love that. That'll yeah. be great. I yeah. Mean, we're just trying to get the word out there and, and the uh -huh. awareness and we work, you know, with, with in any way, in any capacity. And um, we're having our, our current issue redone as a memorial to a, a girl. And I'm just giving that issue to an organization for fundraising. We're going mm -hmm. to change the cover temporarily. Like a, um, so it's a young lady who committed suicide. And mm. Her story was in our magazine, so her anniversary is coming up, so we're going to put her on the cover and flip the cover over and just let the organization, um, you know, sell it or give it away. It's fine. Well, that's so, great. That's really great. So, I like that a lot. Yeah, so yeah. we'll definitely work with you, you know, with anything if you need or someone needs funds. and But the affiliate program... Um, I mean, I could even set up something different where you would get 100% of the thing. It would just be a whole different account. So we'll definitely work with you on on anything that, you know, we could be helpful with. But that's fascinating, the um, going to back to Guyana. I know. 
really exciting. Yeah, mm -hmm. it really is going to be quite a, a moment, quite a historical moment. But yeah, I, I've I've had such a, a wonderful time speaking with you. It was very very um, I don't want to use the word enlightening, but it was very illuminating, and I know it it kind of uh, gave me a, a different angle, and I learned quite a bit. That's and you know with what you had to say. So. I really appreciate knowing you and, and, you know, keeping in touch with you. Well, thank you so much for your oh. call. I mean, I really appreciate it because, you know, sometimes I'm interviewed by people and they think that Jonestown and Guyana are someplace in Africa and, like, they're so far, like, I don't even know where to start to yeah. explain things to them because it's so far from even understanding the most basic things. So mm -hmm. I appreciate that you did your research. It makes it so much nicer for me and more interesting too. 